It is the software that revolutionised music. It powered the iPod and gave birth to modern music streaming. So this week on Download This Show, what does the end of iTunes say about the state of music? Plus, we will bring you all of the other key announcements from Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference and it is the very new, very expensive, very fast, very electric new purchase from Victorian Police. What exactly is it? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And welcome back, technology reporter with the ABC Science Unit, Ariel Bogle. Hi, Mark. Busy week for you. Were you guys rated too? Uh, not yet. <laughs> no. <Wow. laughs> I said it as a joke and then you made this face of like, I cannot disclose. <laughs> no. What day of the week is it? Whatever day of the week, it's only that day and who knows what will happen tomorrow. At this stage, uh, she hasn't braided, but who knows? We'll have something to talk about next week. Also, we have the news editor for the technology website, CNET, Daniel Van Boom. Hola. I, every time I say your name, I make it sound like it is actually booming. I'm sorry. I'm a booming kind of guy. What can I say? Yeah, you are, buddy. All right. So <laughs> Apple had its annual nerd fest, which I've now just realized is a double up of terms. Uh, it is called the Worldwide Developers Conference, where they bring together Apple nerds of the nation of the world uh, together to announce all the different things that are changing about primarily focused on software changes, but it sort of has impact on hardware as well. Um, they've announced a raft of changes, but I do want to start with, I guess, the big one, what has been hailed as, Ariel, the end of iTunes. Yes. Pour one out for that bloated, awful piece of software. Well, iTunes now feels kind of outdated, but it, iTunes really did change music when it first launched, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that iTunes is a really interesting um, moment in technology history, music history as well. So just to take people back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that's when file sharing really took off. So the music industry's number one enemy was platforms like Napster, which let people just share files with each other, get away with ripping one CD once, and then no one else has to pay for it because the music is so easily shared. And I think that iTunes came out in 2001 and really put a sort of corporate face on that practice. People could start to organise their digital files. There's a great um, clips of Steve Jobs online from the 2001 conference where he's like, it's this thing, digital music, MP3s. <laughs> I love watching. I actually really do. I do quite like watching old Steve Jobs keynotes. They're great. Fun fact, iTunes was kind of created because of like a Jobsian design idiosyncrasy. In the, in the iMac, Jobs demanded that they had a disc uh, slot instead of a disc tray, which meant that people couldn't burn CDs on them. And so their solution to that after like two years when they were like, oh no, we made a mistake, was to make software to make file sharing like legal. Uh, and then two years later, they essentially created a market, like the, the digital music market, they essentially created it. Um, there were a few people who were trying to do that, but uh, the, the interface was just like shoddy. So, so mm. Apple basically created that market. When they launched uh, iTunes Store in 2003, they predicted they would sell a million songs in six months and they sold a million songs in six days. Let's talk about exactly what they are planning on doing with iTunes and then sort of look at the environment around it. So exactly what have they announced they're doing? They're, they're not completely setting fire to it, are they? No. So people, the sort of small number of people that are still 
maintaining the ownership of music files. They'll be able to keep those files. But Apple is splitting the functionality of iTunes into three apps. So a music app, a TV app and a podcast app. So at the moment, all that can be done on iTunes, but it's making um, it a pretty complex piece of software, pretty slow. Mm. So splitting that up, um, people that have an iPhone might already be familiar with these apps um, for the most part. But uh, yeah, as um, you were talking about, I think it is interesting to think of iTunes as having a hand in so many of those developments over the past decades. So it introduced people to a way of file sharing of completely being able to customize your listening experience. You weren't tied to the album format. You could just take the songs you wanted, arrange them in the way you wanted and then burn a CD and listen to it however Mm. you wanted. I mean, and then of course comes the idea of purchasing music, creating a marketplace. Then comes the sort of the way that music was no longer tied to a place when iTunes was combined with the iPod. You could take music wherever you wanted. And I think it also trained us to be open to the idea of streaming, which has now taken off. I, I think what is fascinating about the notion of it being bloated is that that bloatedness was, was really key to podcasts, movies and TV shows. I think because like the behavior we now have for like watching movies on Netflix, a lot of that sort of that user interface, it's sort of built on the building blocks of early iTunes. I mean, I think that's why Apple kept it around for so long because... Uh, there've been like think pieces, I guess you could say, opinion pieces, but as back as 2013, 2012 of people saying like, we should really get rid of iTunes now. Like, what does it do? But mm. I mean, it was just so important to, to that company and to how we like interact with media, awful phrase, but that I think it's, it's just stuck around for, for this long for that reason. But I think we've, we're definitely ready for it to die. I mean, like does, how many people really use iTunes. I can't remember well, the last time I've used this iTunes. this is the thing, though. Like, I reckon there's a lot of people that do still use iTunes because what music's accumulated, right? Mm. In much the same way that when sort of iTunes started to dominate, there's a whole bunch of people with, like, big CD collections that went, oh, God, now I've got to digitise it. Yeah, I certainly don't have any stats to back this up, but my feeling <laughs> is that... I'll take feelings, it's fine. <laughs> is that for a lot of people, maybe people of more Generation X who did go through the work of taking their CDs, ripping the, co- the content off them and c- putting it on iTunes to create a huge collection of MP3s, there have been a lot of complaints over the years that that music collection has been sort of messed with by Apple software updates to iTunes has you know, remove some people's music or maybe they didn't have the, Apple no longer had the rights to certain tracks. And that's what's also complicated about this picture because Steve Jobs, you can hear it in that 2001 keynote and then Apple still uses the language of purchasing music when you use the iTunes store. But it's sort of a mirage. You, if you are buying music for 99 cents or $1.50 or whatever from the iTunes music store, You've just licensed it, really. It's not like a piece of content that you're going to be able to just give to a mate or pass down to your children. Mm. Apple also, under the hood of iTunes, introduced the complete ephemerality of digital content, the fact that you would no longer truly own things, you would just license them. And I think the funniest sort of example of that relationship that you are obliged to have forever, basically, Mm. with a corporation if you use something like iTunes and purchase music, is that time back in, I think, 2014 when suddenly everyone woke up one day and there was a U2 (laughs) album album on the iTunes. Everyone was like, what the hell? I think Bono eventually came out and apologised because it seemed so invasive. Mm. But it really showed just how um, much a lie it was that you were completely 
owning a piece of software and all that music when a corporation and a mega group could just insert their album into your computer. I mean, the other flip side of that is that there have been a few times over the few the last five years where certain artists have decided to not drop their album on a streaming service like Spotify. So I'm thinking there was a Taylor Swift album, there was an Adele album where they were just like, no, you have to buy this. I, I believe that was they were specifically buying Spotify because Spotify is the only one that has a freemium uh, kind of. Uh, so okay. in Spotify, you can sign up for free, but you have to listen to ads. And I, I don't think you can listen to things sequentially, like it's only shuffle. That was kind of the controversy in 2003 when people could buy 99 cent songs mm. because record labels were, were cut because it's like, hey, we need, like, everyone wants to buy the single, right? And the single was essentially a marketing tool for the album previously. And so when, when people could just buy the single, uh, re- record labels were, were pretty upset. So it's just a, a new version of that, right? I mm. mean, and in, in the same way that when, when digital songs came out, I'm sure there are a lot of people with their physical albums who are like, clutching them like no let me have my physical stuff in the same way i guess those people the people who are still using itunes Mm. will have to you know let go how do you think it changes our relationship with music that this sort of this this ephemeral quality is now even more ephemeral than it was before do you think it changes the way we relate to music does it make music value less as it becomes more convenient It's a great question and some people certainly do believe that. When I was writing about iTunes this week, I spoke to someone that has sort of done sociological research about digital music and she argued that music today is much more a background activity. You just, because you can, because it travels with you and because streaming services let you access anything at any time, it just becomes a sort of background to your day and you don't have so much intentional listening, sitting down, going through an album in the way that the artist intended you to do it. And this is really mirrored by arguments and criticisms of Spotify because Spotify has really popularised this idea of the playlist. Mm. So if you ever log into Spotify, it has various playlists that it has started to construct for you based on your listening habits, you know, guessing at what kind of music you might like. But then there are all these options there for like chill music and like, you know, dust till dawn, light classical, you know, all these. Music as service. Music as service. And music critics do say that um, and people that work in the industry say that Spotify is showing and sort of um, encouraging people towards a sort of Muzak kind of relationship because it's if it's in the background, you don't want aggressive music. You don't want experimental music. You just want that nice wash. And so maybe that is changing what kind of music gets made. Yeah, as, as a related point, uh, like Tyler, the creator, released the album like three weeks ago now. And when he released it, he's, he put it on like Twitter and Instagram, like don't listen to this in tracks, listen to it like one through the end. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And I haven't sat down and done it yet. So yeah, <laughs> definitely people are way less uh, into the whole... Why would you disappoint Tyler the Creator that way? I'm sorry, Tyler. If you're listening, I'm sorry. I'm, I have it like, on his authority that he's a big listener. <laughs> <laughs> you know, artists like Kanye West and stuff have listening parties when they launch albums now. There mm. is a bit of a, uh, I would argue, probably a bit of a last hurrah about it, but there is an attempt by artists and labels to create events around music releases, make everyone, make tastemakers sit in a room and listen to Kanye's one to 30 tracks, you know, but uh, it's difficult to enforce that on the average listener who is very used to at this point being able to organise their own experience and um, 
you know, an all-you-can-eat kind of attitude. Also not just a problem for the music industry. Like I, when I talk to game developers, they often say, like if they're developing, say, a PlayStation game, they say, how, how can I create something that someone will shell out $99 for versus something on a, that you can get on the app store for a dollar or free? Mm. Like our, our perception, like the things we get for free on our phones, not, not just music. I mean, music isn't free, but not just music, but everything. I think it's made us devalue a lot of things. You know what? Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day because I, I pay for both Spotify and Apple Music and I don't quite know why I pay for both. But, um, and I was thinking about how songs themselves have changed. You know, like the idea that, you know, once upon a time uh, an album could only be 40 minutes because that's as long as a record could be and then CDs introduced the 70-minute list and suddenly you got more, you know, longer ones. And obviously people could have had double vinyl albums and those things were options, but there is a relationship between uh, what the technology will allow you to do and, and, and how the technology shapes the listening experience. And I was fascinated to know if there was any change in the way songs are structured to satisfy the way people are listening to it now on things like streaming services. Well, I know a hilarious example of that is Sol- the classic Soldier Boy... Uh what was the song? Crank that, crank, crank that. Yeah, because that was that was when executives were like ringtones, man. That's the new era of music, oh, ringtones, man. Of course. Uh, I mean, I guess you'd have to ask the artists, right? Uh, in, in regards to how they structure, um, how they structure their music, but that that's definitely from an executive point of view. Like, I'm I'm sure that's a factor. I think too. I mean, you have to say that the internet gives with one hand and takes away because music has never been so discoverable. Mm. Even if you're not with a major label and people do say that if you're not on a major label, it can be really hard to get into those Spotify playlists. So, and that is a drawback, but at the same time, it's so, the barriers are low, like to get your music onto something like Spotify or to have a music video on YouTube or whatever else. So there's a, there's a bit of a balance here. I think that it is easier than ever to be discovered as a musician, but perhaps harder than ever to make money from it. Just lastly, of the two services, the, the main ones, you Spotify and your Apple Music, what's better? Um, in my, I haven't used Apple Music in a while. From when I last used it, it, it was a bit slower. Um, like the songs would take a bit to buffer. Mm-hmm. And so I got fed up, but it has a better music selection. I mean, I listen to hip hop like almost exclusively, and there are a few. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Dre's uh, first album is only on Apple Music, and I think uh, they're doing more exclusive deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, but I don't know if that's just a hip hop thing, like because it seems to me like Beyonce, uh, Jay Z, and Dr. Dre and Kanye are like the four who tend to have exclusive things going on. They, I, I do think that Apple have been more aggressive about tying up relationships mm. with big US yeah. artists. I, I've noticed that. And I think some of that's a little bit linked to the fact that they also have that radio station that they run, Beats One, mm. which is very heavily like lent in that direction mm. as well. And I think it's I think it's reasonable to argue that the that Apple have, I think, maybe done a better job mm. of possibly like managing artist relationships. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jay-Z is offended you haven't mentioned Tidal. Yeah, there's a reason I haven't mentioned Tidal because it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this, I mean, Tidal, so we should say Tidal was... Um, a whole bunch of very rich people getting together, uh, Jay-Z's and Madonna's and people like that, for this special high-quality audio premium service that I honestly haven't thought about since we did it on the show when it came out. Does it still exist? It's still around, I mean, because uh, it has some exclusive Beyonce content still. Mm. I guess I just I would want to say too that can someone just put 
all those Alea albums online. <laughs> oh, they're, are they not online? No, they are nowhere. There's only one, al- I think one album, one of her early albums, but all those really classic Alea songs, not on any streaming platform. Oh, that's so Release interesting. Release the rights, please. That's really fascinating that that stuff's not out there. Um, for you, between the, um, the, the major streaming platforms, yes, titles in running, is, is who, who do you think offers the best service? I can't really give a good answer to that because I've never used Apple Music. Uh, okay. I've tried uh, Amazon Music, which was maybe my least favourite. Why? Because uh, it had the same buffer problems as Apple Music, but also a worse interface. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, <laughs> in fairness to Apple, like Apple is super good at user interfaces, so yeah. like it's, it's difficult. But like there was no tangible advantage over Spotify. Um I have to try Apple Music again because if their buffer, and that could have just been an Australian thing, but if their buffering issues have have like fixed, probably that because mm. interface I think is better if you're into Apple and also they have more music. But Spotify, have you ever noticed that when you use YouTube, like YouTube is just everything runs really smoothly and then you try something on like yeah. Emotion or Vimeo or God forbid Twitter video, it just never seems to run. Uh, Spotify C- like certain that. streaming services for certain public broadcasters that show my nameless. But yeah, Spotify is just like that. Like it just seems to like when you use it, and then you go to other things, other services. Those services have kind of like small functional problems that you would never even think of. I just realized why I have them both because I keep Spotify for me for my music, and I have Apple Music because it's linked to Siri, and I'm driving in the car, and I need to say, "Hey Siri, can you play your Welcome from the Moana soundtrack for my kids?" And if your phone <laughs> just started playing it, you're welcome. <laughs> Download this show is what you are listening to. We are talking about uh, the change in music services. It has come off the back of Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, where they have announced a array of changes to Apple software. Um, outside of the changes to, to iTunes. Daniel, what what else struck your fancy? Which is not a phrase, but let's imagine that it is. Isn't that a that's a phrase? Is it struck your fancy? Struck your fancy? What strikes sure. your fancy? Yeah, strikes your fancy. Strikes your fancy. There's something your fancy is a phrase. Something's fancy yeah. something somewhere. Um, few things. Uh, so iOS 13, I guess, is the most uh, far-reaching of the uh, software updates. So WWDC, they typically announce their software for the upcoming year, and then they'll have a hardware event in September where they announce a new iPhone. So uh, iOS 13 is a new operating system for your iPhone. The biggest thing is dark mode which is good for your eyes and don't laugh. That's a, don't people know. have been clamoring for the dark mode. I, I, I look at Twitter with the dark mode. Um, people love the dark mode. There is an argument that Twitter is already the dark mode of life. Oh, but anyway. It definitely is. <laughs> um, uh, so they've got uh, dark mode. They've got updates to Google, uh, Apple Maps, which makes it almost as good as Google Maps. I reckon maybe. Apple Maps had a bad rap. I, we made fun of Apple Maps when it came out and I've used it a few times since and I think it's actually quite good. I tried it three weeks ago and it directed me to the wrong place. Well, maybe <laughs> you should have been going to somewhere else. True. Have you considered that? It's true. Um, but what I'm probably most interested by is the um, I, uh, iPad OS. So uh, iOS used to be the operating system for both iPhone and iPad, but now they've split them and they're making a... It's essentially an operating system to make your iPad more like a desktop replacement, a uh, laptop replacement. How which does is, it do that? Sorry? How does it do that? Uh, there's a bit, well, you can plug a <laughs> USB in there. Oh, yeah. Apple loves taking away things and then giving it back and pretending like it's like it, the best This was ever. all our plan. Yeah, this is, we, we planned this whole thing. But it's great. Whole- well, I mean, so if, if you list the, the new functions, they're not really that sexy or exciting. Like there's a new file manager. The browser is like, is more desktop-esque. Um, but I think like I've, I've been using an iPad Pro 
for a few months and it's like the most justifiable unjustifiable purchase like it's it's such a it's so awesome but like it's i don't know if you're not like a tech enthusiast like it doesn't quite replace your laptop, but like it's also really awesome to use. Yeah, and I think out of out of fairness, we should say that like there are other d- technology companies out on the market that I think have probably come much closer to nailing that the the product that sits between a laptop mm. and and I'm thinking of like the the, the Microsoft tablets and stuff mm. like that, Windows which are surface. really designed to live in that yeah. space. Sure, and I, and I think um, the, the the yeah the new OS should should super help with that. Uh, yeah, and they've, they've also split. So Mac OS will work better with, so developers can, Apple are trying to converge their Mac operating system and their iPad operating system. So developers can develop apps for iPad, which will then be easily transferable to your Mac. So there's going to be a lot more, I think slowly, but surely they're making the iPad their like main Mac replacement really. Mm. And what about you out of the other announcements that came out? Well, one thing that was announced is a bit more in the weeds, but it was called uh, Sign In with Apple. And basically it was a way for people to generate a random email when they use third-party apps. So people would be familiar, you signing up, you're signing up to you know, buy something from an online store and ask you to make an account before you can do anything on that site. And typically there's a few boxes there. There's one that says Sign In with Google, that would let you use some of your Google accounts. There's one sign in with Facebook that would use your Facebook account. And then usually there's a third option where you can create a unique Mm. password with your email address. So consequently, people's email addresses are being shared with all kinds of third parties, all types of descriptions. I have like a million email addresses that I use for all kinds, all different platforms on the internet to avoid having to hand over my, you know, most personal email addresses. It's it's really a mess. So I do think that this is a good step by Apple and will let people, you know, keep some of their most intimate um, data with them rather than having to hand it over when they use third-party sites. But I do think it's interesting as well, and April Glazer, who's a writer, a tech writer with Slate, the US news site, pointed this out, that by doing this, by, you know, sort of slapping Facebook and Google on the wrist a bit for their data collection practices, Apple is becoming a tech regulator of sorts. Mm. It's take Because it has such a handle on the hardware market, it can really take the fight to platforms like Google and Facebook and say, we don't like what you're doing. And Tim Cook, the um, leader of Apple at the moment, has been pretty vocal about this too. And a lot of it is marketing. I think that Apple certainly sees privacy and selling privacy as mm. a really good PR tactic for them. But uh, this is a genuinely good step, I think. And they, I mean, this is the other thing. Apple have quite a good story to tell here because they've got form on it, you know, and that's form that's gone back for, for years and years and years. And obviously no big tech company is perfect. I don't want to, you know, cover them in a halo. No, and also in the United States, all the tech companies, Apple included, are facing a variety of um, competition inquiries from the Justice Department, from Congress, from the Federal Trade Commission. So I think as well, good PR for a company like Apple in this moment when they are sort of staring down the barrel of a couple of federal US government investigations is no bad thing either. Mm. I did, I did. The first thing I thought when they announced it was like, damn, that's a pretty good dunk on Facebook right there. <laughs> Just like, I mean, it's kind of, it's obviously much easier for Apple because Facebook and, and Google, part of the, their main business essentially is, is selling data, data. Yeah. advertising. So it's, it's much easier for Apple to be like, hey, we don't do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, totally. 
download this show is what you're listening to. And before we leave, uh, interesting story in cars. Uh, the Victorian police have bought their first electric vehicle. They bought a Tesla. Do we know what they're going to do with it, Daniel? Uh, they bought a, not only a Tesla, they bought a Model X, which is the most expensive Tesla. Right. Um, Who signed off? Who wanted a Tesla in Melbourne? Well, it's, 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 it's getting close to tax time. Maybe they had some money in the budget. <laughs> I seriously, like you, I, I joke, but you know how often organisations get like that? They get to the end of the financial year and they're like, shit, we've got a bunch of money that if we don't spend, we're going to lose. So who wants to buy the most expensive electric <laughs> totally. car? <laughs> totally. But I mean, they, they've been buying, like, they've, they've been racking up those like BMWs, which also seem like an unnecessary, uh, unnecessarily luxurious like a police car. But alas. Um, Victoria is the classiest of the states. So. <laughs> it's what Victorians always tell me. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so they, they, they bought one for research purposes, essentially, is what they say. Um, so they're looking into how they can use, uh, like looking into the feasibility of an electric fleet. What is perhaps most interesting, maybe I'm reading into this, but the Model X has uh, some autonomous functionality. So it could also be that when they talk about it, they're, they're, they're just saying like, hey, we're just looking into a green fleet. But I also suspect there's a little bit of like, how can we need We want rich? Robocop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is something. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we were going with this yeah. ultimately. I mean, that is sort of what I was curious about with this. I mean, obviously it's an electric car. It's not like a full driverless car, but there are experiments being had around the world in, in this area using electric fleets and using... Um, fleets that involve an element of Robocop. Are there interesting things happening around the world that I guess we should be paying attention to? Well, sure. I think that a lot of police forces globally are looking at the electric car thing, but it's also interesting to think about not just the autonomous parts of the Tesla fleet, but just the computer system itself. I think that the Victorian police are also looking into how they would integrate all the sort of tech that a cop needs when they're out in the car into a system that is already so computerized. So Teslas already have a screen, quite a big screen usually, that goes sits between the driver and the passenger. Would those, you know, cop mapping systems and emergency alert systems integrate easily into that system? Or would they have to rip that all out and put in their own gear? It's mm. an interesting question as well. I mean, at risk of sounding really dumb, because I'm sure there is an answer to this. I really should rename the show at risk of Mark sounding dumb. Can an electric vehicle of this nature keep up with a in a cops and robbers scenario. Yeah, this is allegedly the fastest car they've ever had in their fleet. So is yes. it fast <laughs> is it fast enough? It's pretty we'll find out. <laughs> I believe that the Tesla is pretty fast. Right. And then you know it, it the issues when people criticize the Tesla it's usually about range, how far can it go? And I think in a policing situation it's not like a Melbourne cop needs to drive from Melbourne to Sydney at the drop of a hat, it would be short, you know, bursts around a city patrolling local neighbourhoods. So I don't see why Tesla or any type of electric car would be a problem when it comes to that common criticism around range. Mm. How expensive is a Tesla X? I think it's $180,000. It's somewhere between, because obviously they come in configurations. I think the range is 130 to 180, which, yeah, when I read it, I was like, that seems a bit much for a car for the cops to use. And then, and then it said, oh yeah, and it's also the fastest car they've ever had. I was like, I guess it's worth it. I mean, this is like part of the cost of going to a green fleet though, right? I mean, like in the end, it'll be worth it when our planet is not dead, maybe. I mean, probably the Victorian police aren't going to be the difference maker, but it's well, little things. Th that, that it's is the little the, things, Mark. It's the little, expensive, very fast, computerized things.
And with that, we are out of time. Uh, huge thank you to Ariel Bogle. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks, Mark. Uh, she is a writer, a technology writer with the ABC Science Unit. If you do want to see her article, it's a phenomenal article that she's written about the end of iTunes. It is called Apple May Have Retired iTunes, But It Trained Us for What's Next. You can find it on the ABC website. Daniel Van Boom. I also write things. You do, and you can find them on the CNET website, and they're very good also. Hey, uh, if you like the show, firstly, what is wrong with you? Secondly, do tell a friend. Uh, if you think you know somebody that is interested in media, technology, and culture, let them know. Put a review on whichever podcasting app. I'll say it this time. Uh, my name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week on Download This Show. <laughs>